0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to our little uh, discussion Q&R. We're thrilled that you're here. Um, If you're joining us on Zoom, joining us on Facebook, either way, thanks for being here. My name is Nathaniel Green. I'm on staff here at Grace Point overseeing communications and operations. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, is. And I am just the community moderator for tonight. I'm just, I am one of the people. Um, But I'm also here to filter your questions. And, and get them elevated. So if you have a question, uh, please, if you're on Facebook, leave it in the chat, in the, the comments, or if you're on Zoom, use a little Q&A function, or in the, yeah, it should be a Q&A function down there, and please send us your questions. Uh, we'd love to to chat through some. Um, so I'm going to introduce our uh, our guests tonight, Well, one of them is not a guest. You know him as Josh Scott, uh, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Um, been here since 2019. We're We're uh, having a great time just with our, particularly with our What is Progressive Christianity series and this really fits neatly right into that as well. Um, And our special guest tonight is Dr. Pete Enns. He's the Abram S. Clemens Professor of biblical studies at Eastern University in St. David's Pennsylvania. Uh, He has taught undergraduate seminary and doctoral courses at numerous other schools, including Princeton Theological Seminary, Harvard Divinity School and Temple University. Uh, you've probably seen some of his books, like uh, How the Bible Actually Works, The Sin of Certainty, The Bible Tells Me, so you might have listened to his podcast, The Bible for Normal People, which is a mainstay on my podcast list. Um, we're delighted to have him. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Enns. Delight to have you. Thank you, I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you.
1: Yeah, Pete, thanks for being here. And Marmalade, I know you said, would be lurking about. And we're glad She'll to have Marmalade her her as will make her
2: appearance well. when she wills it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, thanks for
1: taking time to be with us tonight. Um, I, I know we want to spend the bulk of our time just hearing questions and then responding to questions, but I, I read a, a recent article you wrote, and it really um, sort of dovetails nicely with where we've been. We've been in a series, What is Progressive Christianity? Talking about things like the Bible, um, which is not controversial whatsoever, as I'm sure you No, know. of course not. No. Um, so you wrote this article how to hold belief or that we should hold our beliefs slightly and I just want to read a little section and, and just kind of discuss it you say this here's an irony those who claim <laughs> to be the most scrupulous of, of bible believers who say they will follow scripture wherever it leads should be the most open to theological change what I find curious is that more often than not the very opposite is the norm those most biblical are most resistant to having their belief systems challenged. Take scripture seriously by embracing what scripture itself models, a moving rather than static theological process. After all, the question has never simply been, what did God do then? But what is God doing now? Surprisingly, unexpectedly, counterintuitively, and in complete freedom from our traditions. And so a couple, two things stood out to me. First is this whole idea of being biblical and how problematic that is. And then why do you think that is that those who are most would call themselves most biblical. What do you think it is about that that makes people resistant to change?
2: Yeah, um, I think yeah. I'm, I'm going to be as descriptive as possible because I, you know, I, I don't want to because I don't know who's here. You know, I, I don't want to. Um, I'm not here to force people to think differently. I'm here to sort of explain what I think about some of these things. And I and I think the reason why it's so difficult is because of how people are raised in the Christian faith and the Bible is driven home as, as the source of authority, as the source of, uh, and hi Marmalade, that's her tale over there by the way, um, as, as a source of authority, as a, as an unquestioned source of authority, which is part of the, you know, the American evangelical and fundamentalist history and it's, you know, many smart people, smarter than I have thought about this and written about how in America, especially, the Bible takes the place of a state church. You don't have, you don't have, you know, a, a magisterium—they call it—standing uh, over us. So the Bible alone is going to get us through this. And if that's your um, your view of the Bible, then it can't really be an exploration. It has to be more a declaration that you follow. And and I think once that starts being questioned, it's it's difficult for people, and I understand it, you know, because they feel their whole sense of cohesion is sort of coming apart um the the problem though is that eventually it will come apart because the bible doesn't function well like that that's again that's my opinion and and um and that's the hard part you know the way you've always looked at the bible and then you start reading it really carefully and you see this doesn't really match with that part very well at all or how come how come this one says that god's definitely for something and over here god's definitely against the same thing how can that be and uh, that causes stress for people, and and I think people don't want stress in their lives. Who does, right? So especially when it comes to your religious faith, you don't you don't want to have guesswork. You want to sort of just know. So I I think that's it's cultural, it's emotional, psychological, sociological. All these things come together, and it just works that way.
1: Yeah, one of the things I've said a lot lately is that my my perspective on the Bible, my perspective on the Christian tradition didn't change in spite of the Bible. It was because right. of it. Mm-hmm. It was because of trying to thoughtfully engage it, actually read. Uh, and I think one of the things we've done is we sort of maybe post enlightenment, because I think we can even make the argument that inerrancy, like that whole idea. I mean, Luther wanted to throw several books of the Bible in the river. Right. Yeah. So it's it's not, right. I mean, it seems like a reaction to new ways of understanding, new ways of uh, new lenses, new questions that, scholarship brought to the bible that began mm-hmm. and so do you think that that's been a thing that people read back into the tradition like it started it's not it's not really an old thing this whole idea but we sort of have confirmation bias right so I, we I read it back so. in
2: yeah i mean i it's i don't want to make a blanket statement because you have people like augustine way back around 400 talking about how the bible doesn't have errors but the whole thing about error in and, and no error back then it it doesn't have the same sort of freightage that it does today. And and I think you're right, Josh, it definitely comes like after the Reformation, something just happened. Because, you know, Calvin was not an inerrantist, the way we think of it today. Now there was Luther, what happened? And, and um, I think a lot of it was, you know, new discoveries about the Bible from the ancient world that, you know, creation stories that look like Genesis, and it gets people thinking and other archaeological things that, Maybe um, you know, cast into some doubt at least, uh, taking some biblical events historically accurately, like the conquest story in Joshua, yeah. things like that. Um, and you know, evolution didn't help, right? And and uh, and science in general, frankly, doesn't help with inerrancy. So all these things have come to play. And um, the the I think what's really hard is that people do see like Protestants. I just stick with Protestantism. They, we have a faith. That was, um, that was born fundamentally in a pre-modern time. And it's the one we want to hold on to. But since then, we've really entered a lot of modern stuff, and now even postmodern stuff. But we still want to hold on to that older faith. So I, I think it's a little bit of both, frankly, Josh. I think it's sometimes you're reading into it, but also, there were like trajectories set in the 16th century, for example, that that um, mark the true religion for people. It's not Catholicism that's other stuff. It's the true Christian faith, where we discover justification by faith and biblical authority. And the Catholics didn't believe that, which is wrong. But that's the caricature. And and you know, when you think you found it, you do want to hold on tightly. And um, I, I totally understand that I, I also think it's not right <laughs> you know I, I think it, it it hampers the 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 the, uh, the the necessary journey of faith that we have to take because God's infinite and an understanding is always sort of grasping for things that uh, we have to hold on to these things lightly
1: yeah and I, and I grew up thinking that right I, I grew yeah. up believing that we you know this is this is it we have to hold on to it and there's a lot on the line right. but again engaging it changed all of that. I think the thing I'm most encouraged about, because um, I love the Bible, uh, mm-hmm. I come to it as a friend, not a foe. Even when I'm poking and asking questions, and you know, I can tell from your work, I think you love the Bible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so for me, it's like I think there's there seems to be this new, maybe it's not new, but an increased interest in circles that lots of people think, well, if you're not a conservative evangelical, whatever you're not really interested in the Bible. And I think through your, I mean, see this through engagement with your work, right? The podcast, your books, and all over the more progressive Christian world, people are really, I think re, there's an interest in the Bible that's being reignited for people. Do you see that?
2: Oh yeah, I definitely see that. Um, I'll be interested to see where it all goes. You know, I think it's its good places, not bad places, but um, <clears throat> the, the, the structures that really supported evangelicalism and fundamentalism. And I, I, I mean those as descriptive terms too. I'm trying to be sort of clinical here and not not negative against these traditions, even though I disagree with them. Sure. But um, the the structures of these Christian traditions were really rooted in something. That's the very thing people are just calling into question. And it's not, I hate the Bible, let me tear it apart. It's more, the way it behaves is not the way you told me it's supposed to behave. You know, the the great irony of um, people being told, got to read your Bible every day, and then you do it. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute, there are two creation stories. It's the first thing that hits me. And there's a talking snake and a a magic garden with magic fruit. And and it's like, but I was told I have to hold on to a certain way of thinking. And, And the curiosity to ask, what if the biblical writer himself was sort of giving you clues that this is metaphorical and not literal, you know, at least at least allow the space to entertain that, but to do that, and maybe this is where Crosspoint comes in, to do that, you have to, um, Grace Point rather, I Crosspoint, sorry, um, the, to do that, you have to have a community that can support that and doesn't ostracize you for, um, for uh, asking legitimate questions, not just because I want to cause trouble, but just, I have questions and I want to talk about them. And that's very, very important to do. That saves people. If if you feel alone, it's horrible, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I really have come to believe that the whole idea of inerrancy, which was beaten into me growing up. And as I, you know, my first 10 years of ministry, it really ends up being kind of a low view of scripture. In the sense that it says, if the Bible doesn't behave how I think it should, and if God doesn't do this how I think it should, how, how I think God should, then mm-hmm. it's really just worthless and we should get rid of it. As opposed yeah. to, it's actually in those interesting scenes, like you're, you're talking about the two creation mm-hmm. stories. And for me, even, I think the redactor of Genesis did a brilliant job, except with the Noah story. and Maybe there's some others, but the Noah yeah. story is just, <laughs> I never noticed it as a kid or even as an mm-hmm. adult. Like the, the, it's not like there's two side by side like the creation narratives, It's sort of like they went, ah, let's do this, and you, yeah. you sort out the details. But for me, <laughs> even that is
2: exciting because they're leaving the space to wrestle with all this. Right, right, right. I've um, I've come across at Eastern University students who, you know, they they come from very conservative backgrounds and they go to college and they're just not sure what they believe anymore. But then they take some courses, you know, Bible courses or theology courses. And they, for example, I mean, one student in particular was just so excited to see how the Gospels tell the story of Jesus very differently in places, in, fact, in ways that aren't, you can't really reconcile them like historically. There's just something's going on here. And for her, it was just an affirmation of the humanity of it. And it was, it made it interesting for her to say, listen, there's more here than what I was told in veggie tales or whatever. And that's good. You see, I think look looking at those seams can be, it's just it's getting to know the Bible. And when you when you do that, you find you have to start thinking differently about what the Bible is. But all I can say is welcome. You know, people have been doing this <laughs> for a very, very long time. We're not the first ones. And and the whole history of the church, my goodness, I mean, the medieval church for a thousand years, they said, you know, there are basically four ways of looking at anything, you know, uh, there's a, a Christological way, there's a literal historical way, there's a more moral way and one other that has to do with the future and the big picture and, and people didn't have the same interpretation of things either, you know, because, because scripture was more something that was really important to the church, but also something that, you um, that encouraged an exploratory and maybe curious kind of mindset, because it's all about trying to connect it to your existence. And the irony is that you can't really connect it to your existence. If you're preoccupied with defending something that happened back there, because once you're done with that, it's like, well, so what? (laughs) Who cares if it happened back there? What's God doing now? That's really the point. And, and the Bible is, is great for that. It's really bad for like an apologetics textbook to prove things, but it's really good for its flexibility to be adaptable to all different kinds of circumstances. The, the Psalms are a great, just briefly, the Psalms are a great example because the Psalms don't give any details about what's happening. Help me from my enemies. Oh Lord, you know, I'm downcast. How long, oh Lord? Like what, what's going on there? It's, it doesn't matter what's going on there. You know, the, the Psalms, you know, the, one of my professors used the word, the Psalms have been democratized they've been brought to the people. And so the details are taken out so that you can sort of work with that and, 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 and bring your own life into the scriptural world sort of in a conversation. And I think to me, that's like a model for really the Bible as a whole. That's why you have four gospels. That's why you have multiple histories of Israel in the Old Testament. It's just, just guys make up your mind. It's like, no, we're not gonna make up our mind. This is the point. This is why scripture was valued Um, Let me put it this way. The the diversity of scripture is valued by the people who brought it together. They knew what they were doing. They they weren't thinking, oh, how do we let that thing get in there? That contradicts that thing over there. No, this is part of their tradition. And, And that's what makes it, okay, you got my attention now. It's interesting to read. And then the question is, what can we learn about ourselves and our own journeys of faith from a Bible that acts like this? And to me, that just opens up all sorts of possibilities.
1: I love how you put that about the Psalms, um, because I think what one of the things I notice is when I love a song, it means something to me, and then I go hear the artist talk about what brought that song into existence, and I'm like, that's not at all where I was when I heard that song, right. and right. how that song spoke to me. And yet, I think that's the beauty of the literature. It it yeah. has a slow burn, right? Absolutely. Like, it, it, yeah. Um, and when you're talking about the Gospels. I, I, I have this analogy when I was a kid. Uh, we used to listen to vinyl at home and then we got cassette tapes and we started, started making mixtapes. And now of course you have iTunes, where you can just go onto a person's record and pick one song and put it on a playlist. When the reality is an artist makes a record to be heard in its entirety. Oh yeah, absolutely. 10 or 12 songs that matter. And I think what we do with the gospels, especially around Easter and Christmas, is we take these really different narratives that have meaning that the author is significant for the story they're telling and we just try to make Mm -hmm. it comfortable for us by harmonizing it as opposed to hearing hearing the dissonance and hearing what they're saying right
2: right and yeah between the authors hearing that dissonance is is valuable and that's you know there was a time in the history of the church like in the second century where some guy said you know let's just make one big gospel out of the four and it caught on for a very short time, a few decades, maybe maybe a little longer, but people finally figured out you actually can't do that because things are in a different sequence in the Gospels, or they say completely different things. So, so you know, the church is like, okay, the Gospel according to Matthew, according to Mark, right? Was, that's the point. You can't mash it all together, which is what you have to do if you're preoccupied with proving that something happened. You know, history is very elusive, and I think almost some of the pressure is taken off for us because there are, there are so many things in the Bible that are hard to simply say, well, this is completely historical because there are different points of view and you don't really know. It's, it's hard to judge which is, you know, more historical than the other, you know? And, and maybe the Bible is just sort of set up, if I could put it that way, to be sort of um, received differently.
1: Yeah, oh, I love that. Let me, let me ask one more question, and then I'm going to turn it over to to everybody else. Um, Do you, do you think that once Christianity began to spread out outside of Palestine, I mean, just so much, so much happens, but Mm -hmm. in so many ways, the, the, the thing, the faith we have all inherited at times feels more like platonic philosophy yeah, even in some of the arguments about who Jesus is and how many natures Jesus had like I, I yeah. just don't think Jesus followers would have understood those conversations mean, do you think they would have understood mm-hmm. the, the first
2: generations of
1: Christians but they've got those think, conversations I don't think
2: Jesus would have understood and I'm not <laughs> right. trying to be facetious I just think Jesus and Paul would have said what um, but you see here I, I agree with that here's the thing the the New Testament is, and others have said this, uh, David Bentley Hart, who you might know, he, he said this, uh, I heard him on a podcast someplace, and he put it well, and I, I remembered it. He said, the, the Bible, the New Testament is a Jewish apocalyptic text. It's Jewish, and it's apocalyptic, because it really is talking about the end of this age and the dawning of a new one. Um, when that new age didn't really dawn, and you know, there wasn't a strong Jewish following, it became basically a Gentile faith by the second century. Well then, Gentiles are interpreting this stuff in light of the fact: first of all, <clears throat> nothing really ended, and second of all, we're Gentiles, and some smart Gentiles who are trained in Platonic philosophy, and and so they are um, they interpret this story in light of the categories that they're familiar with, and on one level, it sort of takes it away from that. That ancient moment of the New Testament of the first century, but you know, here's the thing, Josh. I think you can't um, you can't chide them too much. You know, the Church Fathers and those who were responsible for the creeds of like the third, fourth, fifth centuries. You can't chide them too much because all they're doing is trying to bring this this old story, this old Jewish apocalyptic story into a context where there is nothing Jewish or apocalyptic about it. And you have to be creative about it. And I think that sort of is the history of the entire church. We're always doing, I'm doing it, you're doing it, your church is doing it. Everybody's doing that. We're trying to match the two horizons, the the ancient and the contemporary and bring them together somehow, which is very hard work. There's no blueprint. it's very rewarding, and, but it's also a little bit off-putting and, and even a little bit scary sometimes. <laughs> what am I doing here? But, but that is what people have always done with the Bible. And, and um, so, you know, I think I, we can look back at that creedal era and say, these guys were like hyper-philosophical, you know, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten okay. of the Father, not made, being of one substance with the Father, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's like, maybe that's a true. I have no idea. I don't even understand it. Who does actually? I mean, who actually understands being of one substance with the father? You have to be like one of seven philosophers, you know, in the world that like really can grasp that kind of stuff. Um, But it's fine. You see, this is their understanding, their application of the gospel in their moment in time. And they're doing the same thing that you can walk backwards in time, you know, before the biblical period. This is what Paul was doing. This is what the gospel writers were doing. This is what Jews were doing before the time of Christ when they had to sort of think of their own ancient pre-exilic tradition living among Greeks and and trying to make sense of things and and what the world was like. So it's like nothing could be more obvious to me than these transitions that happen in the history of the church. So it makes me less... um, I don't. I don't go to a judgmental place right away when I see how traditions are trying to make sense of it. I want to try to listen to it, and I do wind up disagreeing at times. You know, sometimes pretty strongly, but um, you know, I don't run the world either, so I, I, that's fine. Um, but but we're all sort of doing something like that.
1: It's like we're all building the plane as we fly it. Yes, <laughs> and and some of the danger is we've gone to certain eras of church history, and we've wanted to set that. In cement and say this is the full and final thing when the, what you're saying and what I 100% agree with is actually this thing is intended to keep unfolding.
2: Right, right. I had a conversation once uh, years ago at the seminary where I taught with um, uh, a colleague of mine who was very committed as, as a Presbyterian that basically the 17th century nailed theology down and he was quite adamant about that. But we were talking about something specific with the New Testament. And I brought up the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were founded in 1940 something, 47, and which really shifted a lot of things very legitimately in biblical scholarship. And I, and I said, well, what do you do with the Dead Sea Scrolls on this particular issue? And he said, it doesn't matter. And I thought to myself that I don't know if we can have a conversation then if it doesn't matter if the point of all this is to locate that moment in church history where this is it. And there will be no furthering of understanding. There will be no more shifts as there have been for, you know, 1500 years. It's all pretty much been done. The rest of it is just tidying up from some footnotes. That's really what it amounts to. And I think that's not just a small view of the Bible. I think it's a small view of God.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Um, well, I'm going to, Stop asking all the questions now, Nathaniel. Do we have some questions coming in?
0: Oh, do we have some questions?
2: I'm excited. Are um, any, first any one... questions designed to make me look good, or are they
0: just really challenging questions? Oh, okay. Here's a good one. What kind of beer is in your shelf? Okay.
2: Here's the thing. I really try not to drink beer during the winter time because it makes me gain weight. I'm at that point in my life where I actually have to be careful about it. No. No more bag of Oreos and a gallon of milk while watching basketball. I can't do that anymore, so I have to be <laughs> sort of careful. But uh, I don't mind a little bourbon at night before I go to bed. But that's a, that's a different thing. I get to do that because I'm a big boy. But beer, when the summer comes, it'll, it'll, it'll be there. And I, when the summer comes, I am very boring when it comes to beer. I'm almost embarrassed to tell you the beers that I like. Should I? I do like I mean, Corona. For some reason, Corona is just a
0: nice, light summer beer. Why are you laughing, Nathaniel? Are you laughing at me? No, I'm. <laughs> I, I have no judgment to render. I am sort of laughing. I'm trying to emphasize. You know
2: what? I don't care if you're laughing at me. This is my life. I get to go home after. Okay. So um. So I do. I do like. So I like. I like lighter. I like Pilsners. Basically, that's my beer. And I have all my friends like the super mega hoppy things that are almost like a meal, like a chocolate yeah. stout Too, like, I can't, I can't do that. It's like, you know, I'll blow up like a balloon. So
1: well, can, I, can I ask you about your bourbon? Uh, Cause I'm from Kentucky. So bourbon is yeah. one of my favorites.
2: Well, I, you know, I sort of, I shift all over the place but I do like, I've always had an affinity for Maker's Mark. Um, I like, um, I like Knob Creek. Yeah. I like Woodford. Um, I also, I mean, what else what else have I had lately? Um uh oh gosh, they're all the names are skipping me. Um but I you know, I'm not beyond buying a $21 bottle of urban that's on sale. <laughs> Who it is? doesn't have to be. It doesn't well, a lot of people are like, you're drinking that. It's like, yeah, it's fine. It's you know. But um, yeah, so I, I, I really try, I'm sort of like trying to gain a knowledge of bourbons actually, I've read some stuff and just trying to experiment with different things. And um, I've had some scotches too. I've treated myself to some good bottles of scotch and learning how to drink it with a splash of water and stuff like that, so yeah.
1: Well, let me recommend well, Old Forester. That is my current, it's, it's about, it's like a $27 bottle of bourbon okay literally
2: josh literally that's the one that i have behind me someplace that i didn't want to go looking for that's exactly the one i actually like old Mm Forester, i think it's 86 proof um which is fine i i I sort of tend to like the ones that are more in the mid 90s pushing 100 so they have a
1: 100 proof bottle too that is oh really
2: Mm -hmm. i didn't know that okay all right i have to try that so very good but that's the oldest that's isn't that the oldest like consistently operating uh distillery in america or something that makes old forest or something like that. i think it says that on the label yeah they might be lying
1: it doesn't matter it's on the label i
2: hope you don't have any teetotalers out there watching this it's just like i can't believe they're talking about that Neither can I, frankly, but anyways. So.
1: We have a conversation with a Bible scholar, and we're just going to spend the night on bourbon. So.
0: Yeah. Don't understand. bourbon God don't made bourbon. bourbon. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, here's an actual like, serious question. Um, <laughs> from Russ, is it possible that democratizing, quote unquote, our congregations has led us to this strong belief in biblical inerrancy?
2: democratizing our congregations is that what it said yes yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure what that means if if um is it Rush? He said if he wants to clarify a little bit what that means maybe we can come back to that okay i'd like to end yeah. it sounds like a really interesting question i'm just not exactly clear on, on what he's asking this is why the live thing
0: in front of an audience i could just get feedback <laughs> no. um Adam asked, do you think there is any point at which inerrantists will be forced to take stock of the evidence against inerrancy, especially scientific and historical inaccuracies? And will they begin to shift their stance or will they just continue to dig in their heels? Well, I think that's happening in the
2: sense that I think inerrantists are every day saying, I just can't do this anymore. And because they email me (laughs) or they leave messages on Instagram or something. It's happening all the time. as soon as an inerrantists like more globally, like more like institutionally, as soon as you do that, you're not an inerrantist anymore. So it almost like would eliminate itself um, immediately. So, um, but I, I, and the thing is that I think that it's powerful enough of a narrative an inerrant Bible that there's always going to be an influx of people. Um, you know, if, if the past, you know, 100 or 200 years of thinking hasn't really brought an end to something like like a simplistic, inerrantist view that everything's historical and the Bible's a science book and that sort of thing. You know, if it hasn't happened, the only thing that's going to make it happen isn't like more information or debates. It's people in crisis modes in their lives when all of a sudden it means something to them. And they go through that dark night of the soul, and and um, which nobody wants and nobody should want. Um, but you know, I think it's I think it's going to take that kind of thing, and uh, where maybe some of those questions that really animated the whole inherentist thing, even the questions themselves, stop being as meaningful. You know, so I think it takes a transformative moment, not like an intellectual aha moment, to get out of that.
0: Uh, Daisy asked, when you know that many stories, many of the stories in the Bible that you were raised to believe are literal are either a symbolism or just stories, um, how do you keep faith in the existence of God?
2: Right, and I think that's a really great question. That's a very common one too, which is what makes it a great question. But um, I think, you know, just take a step behind that question Um, the existence of God and a literal Bible, those things have been sort of joined together and they never really should have been joined together to begin with. So what you're really suffering through is, um, not your fault. First of all, I mean, they're not mean people who did this to you or anything like that. It's just, it's the way of thinking. So, um, getting comfortable with decoupling those two things is, I think, one thing that allows you to um, continue having faith in God, because you realize that God is bigger than the stories in the Bible, even though they're great, and they're foundational, and they're helpful, and and they're inspiring, and they're challenging, and they challenge you in your life, all that kind of stuff, that's what makes the Bible great. But to equate the Bible with God, which is pretty much what is behind the question, that's actually an idolatrous position to take. So you, you, I think just by living with the Bible and by being in a community where there are other people who understand that stress, but still are able to model faith, I think that's a very, very important thing to do. Um, but it really is a, it's, it's a big mindset change to, to think, god is still god even if the bible that i once thought i knew is very different than i actually knew it to be but you, after a while you take a step back from that and you say well what could be more obvious <laughs> you know the, the god has to be much more than this and and um and it, you know it's it's part of the post-traumatic stress disorder to really try to work through that so i understand it you but
0: know you another, think another
2: thing on that because it's Go ahead, go ahead, Josh. I was just going to say, don't you think some of that is just
1: pastors have done over the years a really poor job of teaching church history? Because one of the things I get all the time from people is if you don't believe the Bible is this, this, and this, why even be a Christian? When in reality, the Christians existed hundreds of years before they had a Bible.
2: Right, well, I think part of the assumption there is that what we believe today is what faithful people have always believed. And I hear that an awful lot. And I say, yeah, no, (laughs) because all of our faith structures all of our faith categories the way we articulate our faith there is always a cultural dimension to that you can't escape that and and the world's a very different place today than it was you know even 50 years ago or 100 years ago so you can't just sort of slap your belief system on what christians have always believed you know in in the presbyterian world that i was in for for a number of years it was sort of like okay our denomination goes back to the first Calvinists, and then you jump from the first Calvinists in the 16th century, you jump from then to St. Augustine, who lived around 400, and then Jesus, Paul, and then Moses. That's pretty much the line, and you're meant to understand your tradition as being the one faithful representation of that entire scheme, and a a little bit of church history is a really good um, uh, antidote for that kind of, I think, really very limiting and if you take it too far pretty dangerous thinking because that's how cults start see the thing is um i think you know getting back to the question the bible is different than it used to be how can i hold on to a faith in god the bible used to be the anchor now that anchor is taken away give me another anchor and I think the answer to that is no. <laughs> you don't get to have the anchor. The answer is learning to trust that God is, is lovingly present with you already, exactly now, just the way you are. And then you get to live into that kind of, you know, the things to to, to um, embrace, the things to even hold on to, so to speak. But. It, it makes it so very mechanical to me that a belief in God has to depend on thinking about the Bible in a particular way. I, I just think if that's true, Christianity doesn't mean anything as far as I'm concerned.
0: It's just a legal fiction with a book. Mm. So good. We did get some clarification from Russ, someone that asked for the context. Um, Rest said, what I'm wondering is if the ideas that arose out of the American Revolution, such as democracy and individualism, have led us toward doctrines of inerrancy. Um, I would argue that many good things came from like the Stone-Campbell and Cambridge movement, but maybe encouraging folks to interpret the Bible for themselves has also encouraged inerrancy when we come across New Testament ver- verses that might be interpreted as authorizing biblical inerrancy.
2: Yeah, I think that's I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I I wish I was more of a church historian to evaluate, but Mark Knoll, who is a good church historian, says something very similar to that. He says, um, inerrancy took a particular foothold in America in part because there's no state church. And so the gospel spreads and, you know, circuit riders going out to the Midwest to farming communities and, you know, believing in Jesus, well, here's this book. There's no Pope to look to. There's, There's no head of the church to look to. And um, I do think too that, um, you know, Brian McLaren talks about, uh, I, I think he talks about like the US Constitution and how um, that has sort of gone hand in hand with American inerrancy because here's the document you appeal to and it works a certain way. And as we all know, you have um, originalists for the constitution like you have originalists for the, um, the Bible and what's the opposite of originalist? Do you know josh or nathaniel what politically I forget. the the opposite of that and you have that with the bible to more progressive types and things like that uh contextual kinds of interpreters you know like you know we're not living in the 17th century so or 18th century so you know the second amendment you have to sort of augment that that kind of thinking right so um and i and i think that uh you know you have parallel things and again i'm parodying brian mclaren here uh, between the rise of American democracy rooted in, a, in an ancient document and 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 Christianity's um, particular interpretation in America which has been really a, a rather strong and some might even say rather unique view of, uh, of biblical authority in the history of the church so yeah
0: that's great thank you and thank you Russ. Um, a question from an anonymous participant, and the Bible tells me so you reference a moment where you were frustrated or surprised to find that uh, a person who didn't grow up in church and attended Christian college knew more than you, sort of like you've been gypped. Would you say that those schools and or churches have done wrong by their congregations? Um, yeah, that's a that's a tough question
2: to answer i I don't feel that I was wrong I felt that I wasn't paying attention to my Christian college <laughs> that's, it's sort of on me it's not on them I just was I was a good student but i wasn't I wasn't ready to absorb things you know at that point in time it took it took a couple of years uh, after leaving college um, so I can't blame them but i I do think that churches have responsibilities but um i don't know, I just think of you know, speaking from a place of privilege, you know, I, 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 it's, it's easy for me to think that churches should all teach their people biblical hermeneutics and church history, but most churches, I think, are not like me, and, 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 they're other concerns, or other um, passions, or other needs than, than the intellectual one. Um, so I don't know how to answer that. You know, I, I think, I. I th- bottom line i think if if churches can do what they do without being biblicistic about it that's the problem the problem is biblicism it's looking to the bible for a particular kind of rule book authority rather than a source of wisdom Um, that's at least the way i put it i think that's the problem and and um how that can be changed or corrected in the American context, that's a tough one because it's it's part of the DNA. You know, the Scope Monkey Trial is just, you know, just the DNA, it's there. And, and people still talk about 1925 and what happened. So um, it's a good question. I wish, I wish I could give a nice, simple answer to it, but I can't.
0: Um, an anonymous participant asked, uh, as a gay man, I no longer look for the Bible to affirm all of my beliefs. And as a Christian, I still hold firmly to my faith. Do you think there needs to be biblical reference or agreement with what we come to believe about the universe or God?
2: No, I don't expect the Bible to do that. Um, I do think, this has been on my mind the past few months, but I do think that there are all sorts of places in the Bible somewhat in, in the Old Testament um, and, and certainly in places in the New Testament that encourage a posture of, of mystery, of contemplation, of openness, of not knowing. And I think those are, those are the kinds of places, but in terms of um, uh, more specific support and things like that, no, I think that's, that's the problem you get into by expecting an ancient document again, I love the Bible, remember, right? So, but it's still an ancient document to, to expect that to address questions that frankly, the writers were never asking. And I think it's really unfair. Um, I think you can interpretively, uh, you know, a creatively engage text to sort of uh, get us talking about difficult issues of maybe science or whatever, but um, it's, it's simply not going to answer those questions. And so I have, I really have real problems with people trying to match contemporary science in any way, shape, or form with Genesis one and two. I just I don't. I think it's actually damaging to how we look at the world around us and how we look at the Bible. We're expecting things from it that it um, we don't have the right to expect. Well, how do we know if we're right? We don't know if we're right. That's the thing. That's called the journey of faith. But it's we learn to cultivate trust and to see, to be open to what God is doing in the world around us now, which is always very uncomfortable and unexpected and sort of out of the blue, rather than going to, you know, Genesis one or two to solve the evolution problem for us, for example. Right. I think one is more, um, you know, we use the word progressive. Uh, I'm trying to think, Brian again has some helpful language here. He calls them traditionalists and something else. Not progressive, but um, I, I, maybe people with a more curious posture about the future, right? And I think that's really what's needed. Um, tradition is fine. I mean, I think, you know, Christianity is a tradition. That's my cat's tail. She's unhappy with me because she wants to play. You don't see this. <laughs> you don't even see what's happening here on my lap and just just under the surface of the screen here. So um, here, come here Marmalade. Just say hi. Just say hi. Get it out of your system. There she oh, is. Marmalade. She's... There. Okay. Anyway, where <laughs> were we? <worried. laughs> what were we talking about? And I got distracted. Um, I forgot.
1: Somebody remind me, where were we? Uh, we were talking about engaging the Bible and I and actually wanted to ask you. So I, yeah. I think the language we use around the, the Bible is an issue, uh, and because people will ask, how do you use the Bible? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the problem. We've been using it, like to prove things as yeah. opposed to yeah. engaging it and experiencing the story. And is that ever, do you think yeah. that's an issue?
2: Um, yeah, it's sort of like, again, not, not to denigrate it necessarily, but the morning devotional thing, um, which is really great, I think, in certain stages of our faith. But you know, you read it and what one thing can you apply to your life from whatever you're reading right now, which means you have to skip an awful lot of the Bible to do that, or you might kill people. I don't know how that works, but um, so yeah, I think using it that way, it has a place. I don't want to say it's it's wrong, but I think it's more for younger Christians, and 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 I don't mean necessarily age-wise, maybe just people who are new to the faith. I think at some point you realize that there are other ways of engaging the Bible. And, and sometimes, you know, I know plenty of people who just take a break from the Bible because they have to. And I'm like, yeah, you should, you should do not read it. (laughs) It's killing you. But then you come back to it and and they say, well, where should I start? I'm like, it doesn't matter where you start. Um, have, Have you ever been curious about anything that's in the Bible? And maybe you should read that, but read it from a point of view of curiosity not utilitarian what can I how can I use this to do something else just just simple curiosity like the student I mentioned who was just noticing that the gospels present Jesus differently very differently in places that was just a matter of curiosity which brought her up out of her own familiar way of thinking about a lot of things right so so almost don't read it with any expectations. Don't read it as if God's gonna make sure you finish that chapter, you know, or anything like that. Just, just, just read it. And it doesn't matter where, whatever. I've never read a minor prophet. Go ahead,
0: go read a minor prophet. Uh, Jeff asks, in how the Bible actually works, you make note of the distinction between information to be downloaded and an invitation to join a quest. Question is, how does that impact our teaching in communication modes? Is there a sense in which some of our processes or inputs, so to speak, impact our outcomes? For example, we have Sunday school and it needs a certain kind of content.
2: Yeah, there's nothing wrong with content. I mean, I I live with content when I teach college students too, so... um, the, the, I think the either or that I was probably presenting at that point is really for people on their own journey of faith, where um, uh, letting go of that sort of all-encompassing way of reading the Bible, it's information you take in, and the more information you have, the better off you are. I think that can be really debilitating. But yeah, I mean, I think kids should be taught content. The question, though, you know, is what is the content they should be taught? And, and um, I just got some criticism online for suggesting we not teach them like Bible stories, that are especially violent ones. Um, I was a part of a Bible curriculum a few years ago where we focused on Jesus. It's called Telling God's Story. And, you know, it, it depends on the content, right? It depends. If the content is getting to know Christ, that's a different thing than biblical content. And we must start with Genesis and go through the Bible at the age of five. And I think that's pretty horrifying. So, how we define content, I think, is an important factor. What is the content?
0: Emily asks if you could have, if you could have had influence on the finalizing of the collection of texts as we have them today, or the canon. Would you have changed anything? And what oh would gosh,
2: that yes, I would change a lot of stuff. I would have said. To the author of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, I would have said, "Okay, guys, you got like I'm going to give you like a quarter of the space to get this story out there because it's really tedious and and it's also um, a lot of retributional sort of way of thinking about God. You know, it's how many kings you have to read. Okay, I get it. God's mad and God's going to drive them to the exile and kill some people. So." I would probably take that and sort of think twice about it. Um, uh, I I would just find ways to tone down the violence, which is maybe parts of books, but that's not what you asked, it's books as a whole. I love that Job's there and Ecclesiastes is there I'm not sure the Song of Songs is there, but it was why it's there, but it was the most commented on book during medieval, uh, during the medieval period of Christianity. So I'm not gonna touch that one. We're gonna leave that right where it belongs. Um, but I don't know, I probably would toss in a couple of the apocryphal books that I think are really valuable, like The Wisdom of Solomon is fantastic. And, um, um, get your tail out of the way. Um, like the uh, Ben Sira or Ecclesiasticus is a very good book on wisdom. So I might add a couple, um, and maybe take one or two out. I don't know. But
0: that's great. That's an I interesting get to make question.
2: that decision. My students have said to me, "Why don't we just add more books to the Bible?" I'm like, "Because nobody will read it." That's what. <laughs> it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. You can't do that. The book, it is what it is, you know, and you have to deal with it. But I think it's okay to say, I don't like this section at all. You know, I can't read Deuteronomy or I can't read these books because I just feel icky after I'm done with it. Other people might not. That's okay. You do. I don't think there's anything wrong with actually arguing and being very discerning about what you read in the Bible.
1: Somebody asked me once about something Paul wrote, or it was at least written in Paul's name. And they said, "What do you think about that?" I said, "I disagree with it." And think you just mm-hmm. see on their face, like, "That's are you right. allowed? Are you allowed to disagree right. with Paul or somebody right. in the something in the Bible?"
2: Right. Yeah, I read Second Corinthians. Uh, I was reading it last summer for something, and it's been a while since I read. I mean, I'm always reading in stuff, but just beginning to end, just in English, reading it, and um, I remember thinking, I just there are large sections of this I just wish weren't in the Bible at all. Because Paul comes across as really defensive and self-centered in this one, you know, like you know, and really sarcastic and like passive aggressive about fine, don't listen to me. I'm just Paul, that kind of a thing. And he goes on for chapters like that. And and part of it, I love that because they're like, here's just this guy, you know, who's struggling with a lot of the same stuff and and trying to make a church work, you know, and and um, but still, you know, it's like. No, I don't think we should do that. Yeah, I don't think we should talk like that to each other, but that's okay. This is all so much easier if you don't think of God as being fundamentally against you and waiting for you to trip up. If God likes you, you know, I tell my students sometimes, and not God loves you, but what if God just likes you? You know, it's okay. And, and you know, and God's working with you and, and it's all about growth and, and and you know, the journey that we're all on. And, and when you take away the threat of doom for getting something wrong about like how the bible works it just it takes some of the pressure off you know and of course i know what people are thinking i can hear it in my own head the answer to that is that's just you know um uh you know just listening to people who with smooth language you know, giving in and that kind of thing and but i just i've gone to a point where i know i don't i don't think god is like like an ogre, you know, and, and, and waiting for us to just its life's too short
0: for that. It's just too short for that. Nathaniel has a two-part question. The first is, are you going to continue your X book for normal people for the entire old Testament? Um, and then the second is how did Christianity develop a theology of hell when hell is never really mentioned in the Hebrew scripture.
2: Yeah, I mean, the first question is we do have, there are like three or four other um, volumes in the works, which would be, I think we're aiming for maybe a couple of year, but do the math. That's still gonna be a lot of years. I'm not trying to be around when that's done. And we'll see, we'll see where it goes. I mean, um, we're we're planning on on doing that, and uh a couple of of them are gonna be New Testament volumes. So if somebody working on Mark, for example. So um, so we'll see. And it's not just gonna be Jared and me writing them, that's a the thing, because that's impossible. Um, but we'll write some and we're gonna have people we really like who who get it you know who get what we're doing and and to write those volumes for us as well so we're pretty excited about that um, yeah where did hell develop that's a good question because you know the eastern orthodox they never got on board with that idea and and um, you know they were around the first few hundred years of the church they still are of course but they were influential back then so where did it come from um, I think, it, you know, the the line that I've heard, and, and I, I think is right, I mean, Tom Wright talks about this too, is basically it's a medieval invention to scare people. And it comes from readings of certain texts that probably don't lend themselves towards that. Um, Jesus does have judgment language that involves fire, but um, in a place called Gehenna, which is, uh, which is unfortunately translated as hell in many of our Bibles, but that conjures up all these images of Dante's Inferno and the stages of hell and things like that, which the Bible doesn't talk about, you know. And, and um, you know, when Jesus says, um, you know, um, don't murder, you know, but I say to you, you know, if you hate your brother in your heart, you know, basically you're fit for this place called Gehenna. I hope he doesn't mean hell. Because everyone's going there. <laughs> you know, what Jesus is talking about, it's 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 using well-known Old Testament language to talk about the inbreaking of a kingdom and and what it means to be a part of this kingdom is basically an inner transformative kind of act, not just what you do, but who you are on the inside. And that's really, really important. And he uses the the highly charged language that Jeremiah used and Isaiah used to basically talk about Jerusalem being overrun by your enemies and a lot of smoke and a lot of fire and you're thrown into a pile of it that kind of thing so um it's it's really not a biblical concept and I think it's it's uh it is I think about as misguided a thing as you could possibly say about the creator of the universe as far as I'm concerned and it's And anything biblical is really symbolic and metaphorical language and not literal language.
0: That was great,
2: thank you. You Um, You know, how come the more more... questions I get asked, there are more questions popping up. I'm probably not doing a good job answering them because they want all these follow-ups, but that's okay. (laughs) I keep seeing the number keep going up there, just anyway.
0: It's, I mean, it's the Bible. There's so much to cover. I know, um, there is a lot to cover. <laughs> <clears throat> um, Lauren asked, what are your views on Trinitarianism? I feel that even after a lifetime spent in conservative churches and engaging in deep Bible study, I still only have a vague understanding of Trinitarian doctrine. And I f- it feels like even within churches that claim biblical inerrancy, there is a wide spectrum of interpretation. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I think... Um... I, you know,
2: Christians will say, including, you know, progressive Christians, will say, you know, this Trinitarian thing, we just need to sort of like let it be, you know, and not dismantle it and stuff like that. But I don't, who possibly could understand something like that? You know, that's, that's one of those things I'm just convinced that if you had brought that to Jesus or Paul, they would not have known what you're talking about. It's it's a way of articulating the nature of God in philosophical language. Doesn't make it wrong, but it's trying to say something about um, specifically Jesus, I think, and and who Jesus was, you know, during his ministry and and the resurrected Christ and the relationship between this person and and the Father who sent him and then the Spirit that endows him and how they all sort of work together, um, so I think that's the main thing, I think it's about Christology more than anything else, which no one understands either, you know, that's the, the it's interesting, you know, these mysteries of the Christian faith are actually that they're mystery, we don't really understand them, and, um, you know, Lauren, I'm not sure if you have any sort of, like, background in that beyond uh, churches, but I can guarantee you there are people still writing books about the Trinity and like, how do you think of it? What does it mean? What are the implications? So that is an ongoing Christian conversation. And um, I really get um, uh, a little bit irritated when people say, well, let's just go back to the creeds. They say it all there and, and you don't need to question it. I'm like, I don't even understand what they're talking about. And, and it's not like I haven't tried. It's just, it's really abstract language. And uh, I guess you just have to believe something you don't really understand. Um, I think you can believe in an idea of, of the complexity of, of God in, in, in Trinitarian language without trying to understand it. And also allowing people to formulate that in different ways that make sense to them. We're all just trying to make sense of the same mystery.
0: Richard Rohr wrote a book, I think, Divine Dance. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Uh, David asked, how does temperament factor into the way that people think about the Bible? I think it factors a lot. And part of this is
2: about learning, seeing a good therapist and maybe getting your your temperament changed. But no, I I agree with that. I think... um, To me, this connects to the question of denominationalism. And I think some people are more attracted to certain church expressions because of their temperament. Um, People who just have to know might be more attracted to maybe a Calvinism or Southern Baptist or something like that. that, That's a blanket statement. But I do think temperament has a lot to do with just how we engage the faith, how we engage each other and what we think God is like, because we're always creating God in our own image. Everybody does that. But um, this is why you know, the study of theology and the study of ourselves, these things are intertwined. They always go together. And they're mutually um, enlightening. Uh, you know, John Calvin, uh, this massive two-volume thing called the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and the very first, at the beginning of it, he says, knowledge of ourselves and knowledge of God are two sides of the same coin. That's my language. You can't really know God without knowing yourself. And you can't really know yourself without knowing God. The two things work together, which is why I think for people to to take seriously understanding themselves, their temperament, for example, um, is it goes a long way to understanding what God is like. But I think very often, and again, this is just my experience, people don't know themselves very well. I'm working on it myself. You know, we don't really know who we are, we don't know what makes us stick, we don't know what our our biases, our hangups, we don't know the extent to which that filters into everything we think we know. And, and so becoming aware of that is actually very helpful for theology. And I think, you know, again, that doesn't mean there's no one best temperament for that. I think people are different. And I think different temperaments um, will serve different purposes. Um, I, I, I'm glad Paul was the way that he was. You know, he was a really sort of aggressive guy and he spoke his mind and he talked about stuff. So I think temperaments are great, but I think maybe the thing that can temper all our temperaments is one of the things that frankly, Paul talks about as much as anything, which is humility and not pride. And and that can cover a lot of sins to have, you know, I, I still think Paul was a pretty humble guy despite 2nd Corinthians that <laughs> I mentioned before. You had a bad, bad afternoon when you fired off a letter. It's like an email you wish you hadn't written. No, there it is. Um, So yeah, anyway, long answer to a very good question. Yeah, I do think temperament makes a lot of difference and we should embrace that and accept it.
0: Thanks for the question, David. Um, Adam asked, Kristen Cobes Dumez, I think she authored Jesus and John Wayne. I could be wrong. Um, utilizes the term evangelical as primarily a cultural identity rather than a theological one. Do you think this distinction helps or hinders the way we interact with evangelicals or participate in evangelical spaces?
2: Yeah, well, I haven't read the book, um, although I think we're going to have her on the podcast in the months to come, so I have to get to it. Um, I, I think I think she's right in the sense um, that. There are people who probably identify as evangelical who don't have a clue about anything theological who haven't sort of like thought their way into it. It's almost become a um a default you know um like evangelicalism is basically the state church right now and and, and that's been happening for, for you know a good part of the past few uh, few decades so I think there's a lot of truth to that um and also, you know, whatever theological views are held about, you know, the deity of Christ or the inerrancy of the Bible, whatever. At the end of the day, I am not sure that's what holds them together. I think what holds them together is a fear of a way of life changing. And when you talk like that, uh, you're talking about a cultural phenomenon, uh, not a not a like theological position phenomenon. So I, I think there's a lot of truth to that, although I wouldn't, <clears throat> I, I think the big religious or theological thing that fuels a lot of that is a particular way of reading the Bible. I keep coming back to that. It's it's a particular view of inerrancy of biblical authority. It's it's a verse kind of approach that maybe you can find something in the Bible that abortion is wrong. Not to, I'm not interested in talking about it debate, uh, debating that. It's just Know there really isn't anything in the Bible that talks about that, but there are a couple verses that, if you want to make them talk about it, you can. That's driven by a particular view of the Bible, how the Bible functions and what the Bible is for, right? Like you were saying before, Josh, right? The uh, not the um just taking some verses instead of you know looking at the range of things, and and uh, so that is a theological issue, but no one will change based on me showing them that that doesn't work very well something else has to happen so but it's 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 because it's so culturally entwined that it's so hard to um, to change
0: sandy <laughs> asked could you speak to the difference between engaging and manipulating the text <laughs> okay
2: Oh, I'm not sure how well I can distinguish that in my own <laughs> stuff. I'm trying, but um, <clears throat> I, I I would say I, uh, it's sort of what I just said earlier, but now applied to something different. I think the difference is a approaching the text with a a um, an openness and not with an agenda which is really, really hard to do. <laughs> you know, I, I think you engage more when it's like you're trying, you're meeting with a friend and not trying to talk over them all the time and not trying to think of the next thing you're gonna say while they're talking, you know, that kind of a thing. It's being more open and more um, more humble and, and uh, respectful, I think, of the other and then just seeing where it goes. To me, that's more of an engagement than a manipulation, which is, I don't know, the whole internet as I deal with it, you know, you say something and then they quote a verse, and I'm like, well, you want to explain the relevance of that? They don't have to, it's it's right there. That's a manipulation of the Bible, in my opinion.
0: Great question, Sandy, thank you. Stan asked, is there an essential or a core message in the Jesus story that transcends the historical settings in which new iterations of questions are asked? Wow.
2: Yeah, that's almost like a what is the gospel question, which I think is the question we have to keep revisiting all the time. Um, I would say probably, um, Hmm, I really want to think about that maybe something like um, the human predicament doesn't have to go on as it always has been going on for millennia before the time of the gospel, which is rooted in violence and and um, oppression of uh, marginalized peoples. But um, all that is just the end to that, I think is the cross, the end of, of of using violence to be over other people and thinking that God wants you to be violent towards other people, which most religions are full of. Um, I'd say probably that's, to me, that's the thing that sort of transcends culture. But even that, the way I've just put it, I'm actually engaging ancient culture in certain ways that uh, I'm letting that sort of drive the ship. It's not really transcultural. I do like, if it helps anybody, I've been sort of tracking with Richard Rohr's The Universal Christ a little bit too, um, which is, uh, you know, the gospel is a pointer to something beyond itself. You know, the, the ministry of Jesus, its point is to push us beyond that to the Christ, which has been embedded in the cosmos since the very beginning. That's very esoteric and it is but it's a very inviting thought to me because it helps make sense of, I'm not saying it does make sense, more it just sort of helps me try to make sense of um, the particularity of our little planet and this little story and the immensity of the universe that we live in, the inexplicability, inexplicability and the mystery of the universe that we live in. I think that Christianity has to be able to address the bigness of it all and how this story in one small part of the world that um, was kicked off in about a three year period, you know, in the first century, how that affects how we understand everything. Good luck with that. That's a tough task. I'm not gonna have that for you by next week. But I think to me, those are, those are some of the things that sort of um, jump out at me in terms of just getting beyond narrow contexts and transforming bigger things.
1: You mentioned the cross there. Um, I, I think it's tragically ironic that the cross is this event that should expose the bankruptcy of violence. And mm-hmm. yet, for, throughout Christian history, we've turned it into God's act of violence right. to somehow bring about forgiveness. <clears throat> right. I mean, that's just tragic, I think.
2: Yeah. And that's it is pretty common that, um, you know, God is so mad. From the moment you were born, even before you were born, that you're on his bad side, and then something has to happen to get on his good side. And and you know, thank goodness Jesus stepped in the way and said, Hold on, let me just die for everybody. And <clears throat> you know, I, I think that the the cross is a difficult thing to explain. I'm not I don't think it's an easy thing to understand. Um it's the most unexpected moment. I think in the entire Bible, the 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 Messiah of God, the, the 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 God servant who's come to be King, the last thing that should happen to that person is to be killed by the very people who are oppressing your own people. That that simply is is a non-starter in the ancient world for any sort of religious. If you want your religion to catch on, this is not how you do it. It's just it's very very odd. It makes. It's, it's foolishness of the Greeks and a stumbling block for Jews. It is. It absolutely is. It is. There's no question it is. And and so, you know, I want to just be really keep thinking about all that stuff, you know. Uh, but but the standard answer, which is a very legal formula, God is just and you're unjust and God's just wrath is against you. And and Jesus sort of steps away and says, hold on, I'll, I'll take my blood instead. Um Brad Jerzak, I don't know if, if you're familiar with that name. He's a friend of mine, but he's an orthodox uh, thinker. And he tells, you know, the analogy he gave once on our podcast was like, it's, somebody, it's sort of like the neighborhood kids are playing baseball and they break the guy's window and the guy comes home from work and he notices the window is broken. He goes, I'm going to get those guys. I'm going to bring justice to them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe them out. I'm going to just make them pay for it, make them pay. And the father's son says, well, that no, just punish me instead of them. And he goes, good idea. I'm going to punish you instead of them. It, it's, it's just, it doesn't make much sense. But the thing is, here's the problem with this. Um, the Bible does absolutely have substitutionary language. And um, th- that's a big thing. We can't get into it, whatever, 820 it is. Now, uh, we're, what time is it? You 720, right? Um, we can't get into all that. But I, I, this is part of like reading the Bible carefully in context. Because I expect Jews in the first century to try to understand the cross using Levitical sacrificial language that I expect that in fact we sort of see something like that in Judaism, even before the time of Jesus. This is the category that they work with and and the task of theology is to say what categories can we use to talk about this in different contexts which is really scary for people raised to think about Jesus and the Bible in a certain way. And I completely understand that. Um, so ignore me if this doesn't help you, but for others, maybe it's gonna be something very helpful and and know that there are people who have been doing that for um, centuries and centuries.
0: I think we have time for two more questions. Okay. Uh, both are by anonymous contributors. So the first one, um can you provide any explanation or context for the verse in matthew where jesus says i don't i did come to bring peace but a sword um are we allowed to believe he didn't actually say that (laughs) (laughs) well i think
2: um if we understand well first of all yeah i i understand um that little tagline at the end there because jesus does say a few things are like i why does he say that you And, you know, maybe we have to rethink who Jesus was and what he said. And and in some cases, we might have to start thinking about what did Jesus say and what are the gospel writers' interpretation of things that Jesus said? Or even, again, maybe not the best thing to raise with a few minutes left, but um, even gospel writers putting words into Jesus' mouth at times to, to, to further a story along. But um, I've always understood that particular passage as um, speaking in an apocalyptic moment. You know, the the apocalypse, when Jesus says the kingdom is like among you or within you, and and Jesus is, you know, um, the the Lord's prayer. um, uh, Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven the kingdom of heaven is, has descended on earth and Jesus is the king. That's sort of Matthew's idea. That is an apocalyptic moment because it means overturning power, which is the Sermon on the Mount, right? So in other words, it's not, I don't think, I really don't think Jesus is saying, let's start killing people with a sword. I think he's saying that I've come to bring division and there is gonna be trouble because you can't take power away from people without there being consequences. In fact, he bore those consequences, right? So I, I do understand that. I, I don't try to manby pamby that one and say he couldn't have said that. But I think in the context, Jesus isn't advocating violence. I think Jesus is advocating a, um, a regime change in which kingdom is going to rule. And that kingdom of God won, ironically, in the, resur- in, in, the, in the crucifixion and resurrection, that's how that wins. Um and it's our job to sort of help it come about, but we haven't done a good job of that at all. So except except for your church. This is you're doing a wonderful job. But everybody else is just
0: not working. The only God ordained church. Okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> the okay, final question. This is a fun one. If you had a time machine, what point in history do you wish you could go back to and whisper a word of warning? What, what would your warning be, and to you get it? <laughs> oh gosh, um,
2: a word of the warning. Oh, um, there are so many. That's the problem. <laughs> I don't know. I. I in history i think um all right it would probably be roughly in the in this is really self-centered maybe like in the 19th century or maybe a little bit before saying to people okay listen a lot of new things are going to be coming to light we're going to have these creation stories from other cultures that are clearly myths and they look a lot like genesis and and you know our whole timetable for human history is about to be thrown up in the air. So um, in the same way we accept that the earth revolves around the sun, there are other things we're gonna to have to start accepting. So we might wanna start thinking ahead of the game, being ahead of the curve instead of always being behind the curve and thinking differently about some of these things, but um, that would not be listened to. So I'd be wasting my time. Because they couldn't have. How can they possibly hear that when it's not even happening? We have a hard enough time listening to things that are happening in front of us, let alone things that haven't happened. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That was good.
1: I think that wraps us up. That's Josh. Yeah. Yeah, Pete, thank you so much for spending time with us tonight. This has been incredible.
2: And thanks for the questions, Nathaniel, for fielding them so well. That was very helpful, very good, a lot of fun.